City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Production Now in their 27th year, coming to you from the new Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars provide a keen insight into the realities of working in the professional theater. Today we have the production seminar, and it is devoted to the wonderful Broadway musical, Aida. We will follow the show from its creative inception, through its production, and what follows. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing. I hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's experience. Now, I would like to introduce the moderator for this seminar, a veteran producer and president of the American Theatre Wing, Roy A. Sumlio. Roy. Thank you, Isabel. We have a fascinating panel with us today. They are the backbone of bringing Elton John Tim Rice's Aida to Broadway. And let me introduce you to them. We'll find out what they do for Aida. Along the way, we'll find out what they've done before they came to Aida. On my far right is David Henry Huang, who was one of the writers of Aida. Chris Bono, who represents the press and public relations marketing for Aida. Thomas Schumacher, who's the producer for uh, the Disney entity that brought us Aida. Robert Falls, the director. Paul Bogave, who is the musical director and musical, uh, runs all the music of Aida. Uh, and Stuart Oaken, who is the uh, creative director of Aida uh, and creative projects <coughs> for Disney. Let me start, if I may, uh, with Thomas. Uh, Tom, tell us the full background briefly, and we'll interrupt you from time to time, of the creation of Aida, not Verdi's Aida, but your Aida. I have a speech prepared <coughs> on Verdi's Aida, but I'll put that aside. The, uh, this project had its inception uh, a long time ago. It actually grew out of two events. The first event was um, the production of Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. In 1994, that had opened, and simultaneous with that, we opened a movie called The Lion King. Um, and both those things became hits simultaneously. The Broadway production of Beauty and Beast, like it's still running, it's now in its seventh year, and Lion King became this huge movie. Well, at, when we sat down with Elton John and Tim Rice at the end of Lion King, and they were the composers of that piece, we said, what do you want to do next? What creative endeavor could we jump into? And they said, well, we don't really want to do another animated movie, and now that you have a Broadway arm going, what about the possibility of doing a Broadway show? And we said, well, that's possible. And we kicked around a number of ideas, and one of them was a retelling of the, the, the legend, if you will, that's the underlying piece within Aida. And so we began very soon after that to, to shape the piece, to write the piece. Elton and Tim began sort of putting together their sketch of what they would want to do. There's clearly a fundamental story there, but we wanted to expand it, tell it 
really differently than the opera does. We begin much earlier in the story than the opera, and we and follow those characters and how they come together. We did that, and then did ultimately what Stuart about three regular workshops. Three workshops. Um, where we, we workshopped in different versions. Um, did it out of town uh, in, in a partnership with a uh, regional theater, the Alliance in Atlanta. Can I interrupt you uh -huh. for a moment? <coughs> tell, what, uh, tell what a workshop is and how you did them. Well, first. a workshop is, is the process we would use today to not have to go to full production in an effort to see if the material is, quote, playing for us. And what we did actually in this case is we started with the first act because one of the most important elements of this show is the tone. And getting the tone right is something that once you've got it and figured it out, it's easier to go on and find the next you know, level of development. And our first workshop was act one only. It had six songs. Uh, we did it in a rehearsal studio downtown. Uh, worked for about three weeks. Did and then we were all able to costumes? come in. Did you have, excuse me, did you have senior costumes? No, no. Just it's bare, bare stage. I think the first time we actually used music stands and Paul was at a piano, I believe. It was a, a reading. Where they, the actors sat and read sat the Sat in chairs and read the stage. So it was an opportunity to hear the material. Hear yeah, the material. More than anything else. That's right. And who listened to it? Uh, just people really who are working on it. It's not a public at all. Interestingly, to, to Stuart's point, you know, everyone approaches this differently. So often, you know, a musical clearly is the choice of the, the composers oftentimes to say, we have an idea, they write the entire piece, and then take it out and go to sell it. Of course, the, the, the classic backers audition, and you have countless books of these stories. And in a sense, those are like workshops, because you play it. If you read the, in fact, Music Man's about to open in the fabulous Meredith Wilson's book, He Doesn't Know the Territory, where he talks about taking the show to backers auditions, and then ultimately those became workshops, and he rethought Winthrop, he rethought all the characters. In our case, we weren't raising money. We knew that we, we had set aside, we knew that we were going to be the producer of it if we liked the work. So it was really to hear it for ourselves, so it was just the creative team, uh, it was myself, my producing partner Peter Schneider, Michael Eisner was there, of course Elton and Tim, and it's a chance to hear the show and see is it working, is it playing? It's a key piece of the development of it for us. Well, that was one workshop. You did three of the same. Then, well, after we got the first one under our belt, we then went on and finished the writing of the piece, and we saw the whole show for the very first time. And that time, we staged it a little bit further. We didn't do all the choreography, but we were able to at least see it mapped out a bit. And then from that, we were able to deeply evaluate what, where we were and what we needed to do. It required then some new songs to be written and book revisions to be done. And everyone was able to go back, do that work, and then re-congregate, do the workshop one more time. And then we felt we were ready to take it into its first uh, audience incarnation. How far have you gone with the music? Were there any orchestrations at all at that point? Uh, yeah, no, I started the, the great thing about uh, developing the uh, chance to develop the music is I got to do uh, two big arrangements, the first workshop, one of which, God's Love Nubia, is still in the show, which is a big gospel arrangement. So I get to try that out. Also, we had different casts. Well, what kind of yeah. instrumentation did you use in the workshop? I used a piano, and I also, I also used a, uh, a sequencer that I programmed different uh, instruments on, so I could try out you know, uh, violin sounds and all sorts of uh, sounds that we wanted to use in the orchestra. You want to continue your narrative now? Three workshops have passed. So we did, we did these three workshops, and what you learn is both things that you like and things that you don't like. And this important lesson of that is you have to be willing to chuck stuff overboard, to, 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 to eliminate, to pare down, come back to what's plain, and play to the strength, hopefully, of the material. 
Following that, we did this uh, a, a production with the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. Um, we took the cast down, it was, a, it was their production, and we mounted the show, and we got to see it. And some interesting things happened there. Um, <laughs> fundamental one, which has been talked about a bit in the press, but never with the right spin on it. We had a, there was a scenic idea, and again, this is before, before Bob Falls was on the show. We had a scenic idea for the show of a, a pyramid that, was, um, that would create a unit set that would shift into different positions, and it was exquisite, except that it failed about 73% of the time. <laughs> but I'll tell you, that, I tell you, that 27% really <laughs> Yeah, well. But here's an interesting thing. We were at our first preview, yeah. and the, the darn thing just failed. It, it stopped, and we had a full audience, because you know, it's a subscription series at the Alliance, which is a fabulous theater in, in Atlanta. And, and, and Katie Leon, who runs it, was, you know, he's so supportive of us. So there we are, and the thing has failed. And so I leap out of my seat. I run back to the stage manager's booth, and I say, well, we're going to send everyone home. And, and uh, our stage manager, Alan Hall, mm -hmm. said, excuse me, Tom, you're the producer, which means before 8 o'clock and after 11, the show is yours. But between 8 and 11, this is my show. I'm the stage manager. Now that's the sure hand of a man who stage managed 32 Broadway shows and had been a bomb dismantler in World War II. So, so he just says, you know, politely and with more, 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 more determined language than mine, get out of the booth. Right. So I got out of the booth. He says, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to stop for a minute. We've had a scenic problem. We stop the show and he puts up a circle of chairs on the stage. The actors and whatever, because it's a fabulous ensemble of people who play Nubian slaves and courtiers and all these things at once. So they were all in whatever costume they were in, in that moment, mm -hmm. they sat down in a circle with the leads in the middle and the ensemble, the women on one side and the men on the other. And without any preparation for this at all, they performed the show concert style, including the scenes. Well, it was a revelation to us because we learned at that juncture that we were very moved by the music, and that that in and of itself was compelling, and it got an extraordinary response. So for the next, what, six, eight weeks, here we are in Atlanta, and we kept thinking about that first night. And of course, you keep adjusting and changing, and we've been always very willing to change things on this. But what lived with us, and certainly with Paul and Stuart and myself and, and Peter Schneider, was this moment of hearing that music song and hearing the cast stripped away from everything. And that really was, uh, that was the, probably the biggest thing that happened for us in Atlanta. We did a lot of work on the show, but hearing it sung Gave, with a real audience there, not us in a workshop, with a real audience, told us where we had strengths, where we had weaknesses, and what we wanted to attack next. Interrupting the thread. Uh -huh. Chris, this was a time for, that you had to take hold. We saw, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and really, how could you, how could you really cope with that? What well, the press do? called um, the pyramid civil because it had many lives and many mm -hmm. uh, personalities. personalities yeah. yeah. I remember there were, there were several nights when the pyramid would stop. And the problem with the pyramid was that it was uh, computer generated and, and if it stopped it was not going to move. There was no chance that you could <coughs> shove it into a corner or anything. You just lived with it. So the, the actors actually soldiered, soldiered on a couple mm -hmm. of times and did it in different configurations but there were many nights when we knew we were in trouble. And you, you knew we were in trouble because about 15 people would leap out of their seat and run to the lobby <laughs> and go, ah, now what? In <laughs> fact, on opening night in, in um, Atlanta with all the critics there, we had a failure of the pyramid within like the first 15 minutes. It was one of the more upsetting nights. But what, what we learned, I mean, as the press, you'll find that there's a, actually a good ending of the story, is that we, um, as, as Tom said, when we came back to New York, when we started on what would be the Chicago production, Tom Schumacher sort of 
made, put into context for me and sort of has been the thing I've carried around with me for the last couple of years is that we adore this material. It's just as simple as that. And when you said that to me, I actually thought, you know, that's why we do this. The fact is it worked. Pyramid or not, I mean, it, I don't know where the pyramid is now. It's, you know, it's been dismantled or it's in a junkyard, according to someone. If you believe the press, don't. Um, but the fact is, you know, we got through that period and we moved on. And yes, of course, we had lots but of things to deal with. You had to deal with the press who were, in some ways, making fun of yeah. the, this giant corporation who couldn't, right. uh, who could do animation. And spending and money. You know, they would just figure that we were just like taking money out of every, every pocket available and just spending it and throwing it out. Which, you know, is, is frustrating to read about. The, the reality of these guys, and I'm going to say it because no one else will, the fact is that Peter Schneider, Thomas Schumacher, and Stuart Oaken come from the nonprofit theater. That's where they started. And when I figured that out about those guys, in addition to loving working with them and being challenged by them, the fact is they worked in offices, in tiny offices, with no budgets, figuring out how to do things on a tiny budget of nonprofits that we've all done. So they, you know, yes, we have money to spend in some ways, but in other ways, it's all about creativity. It's not about checkbooks. And that's what this project has become. When the pyramid got thrown away, we started over with ideas, which are not checkbooks. Could I ask a question before we go okay. further? What do you mean they come out of nonprofit theory? Explain the nonprofit. Well, so um, each of us are different. I, I started, my, my career began, I was a theater major at UCLA, and I went to work for Gordon Davidson at the Mark Taper Forum. Mm -hmm. And I started actually, as a, of course, as a PA and taping floors. And in those days, of course, this is people who are my age, it's pre-computer, so I was hand retyping Lanford Wilson's script and, uh, 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 you know, making coffee. And I worked up to be a producer um, uh, of their youth theater company at the Taper. So I started, and I also ran a ballet company, which is, really just means you learn how to kite checks to make payroll. So, um, <laughs> so we, I come out of that. And Peter um, had also worked in the nonprofit theater. He ran the St. Nicholas Theater in Chicago, and had worked in a lot of nonprofit settings. So both of us came out of that world. And actually coming to Disney, which we did separately, was the first time that we'd worked in the commercial sector at all. Now cut for, uh, to Robert Falls. Bob, you also come out from it. We haven't introduced you into the mix yet. Yeah, well, I, I, I You're too. soon to enter this tale. Yeah. Right, yeah. soon to enter the tale. Uh, yeah, I, I continue to work in the nonprofit theater, meaning I run one of the larger, I think more successful theater companies in this country, the Goodman Theater uh, of Chicago, you know, much like Lincoln Center or, or Joe Papp's Public Theater or great institutions like Gordon Davidson's uh, Theater in Los Angeles. You know, it's, it's a non-profit theater, meaning it's part of the community uh, with a board of trustees, and our responsibility is, is, is really towards the producing of new work and important revivals of classics in a subscription season. Uh, and we've been very lucky that a number of productions, including Death of a Salesman from last season and Moon for the Misbegotten this season, both originated at the Goodman Theater. Uh, but I, I, ha I wear a bunch of different hats, including producer, director uh, at the Goodman Theater. And in this particular instance, I was, I was brought in by uh, Peter and Tom uh, and Stuart as, as, as a writer-director of this particular project. I neglected to give that your credit. You're absolutely the writer-director. Stuart, talk about, in answer to Isabel's, your background also is... Uh, I, I grew up in Chicago. I met Bob, actually, at the University of Illinois, where we went to college together. And the first play I ever produced at 23 years old was his first production as a director. So that was uh, the beginning of, of our time together. And I went on and worked for a company called The Organic Theater, which was a, a really strong ensemble actor's theater in Chicago in the 70s. 
And then I built a theater of my own in Chicago called the Apollo Theater Center, a 400-seat theater, where I produced for about 10 years. And then I made the transition to Hollywood to make films, which I did for 10 years, and then got the dream job of all time, which was to be able to take my love of the theater and yet find it applicable in a world that had you know, a deep commitment to, to developing good work, the wherewithal to develop good work, and the taste to you know, put the whole company and team together. So that's been my life. And you'll actually see as you go through this, that our backgrounds, a lot of them intertwine. You know, where how we know each other. It didn't sort of just happen on this production. It's interesting, too. In, in Hollywood, when you go out to the animation studios and the offices, it's very much like a little rep company in there as they're working on all these different animated films. And I don't, I don't work in film. I go as a, to work in the theater, and I go out and I see little rehearsal rooms with people at pianos, and then you see people working on the... It, it's like a little rep company Well, Chris references this. We haven't yeah. mentioned I also... I have, right. a simul I have this dual life. I have a place here in New York and I live here and produce theater and then I also run uh, an animation studio. So I run Disney Animation out in California and make all those those animated movies. So I have Successful this... Successful animation. They do. We, we eke out a good living. They, they work out. But um, the interesting thing is that because both in, Peter and I coming from the theater, Peter Schneider and I coming from the theater, we built the animation studio to run, like, as Chris says, like a repertory theater. So if you're an animator, you're like an actor and as a child, Everything I love about the theater is really a gift from, from uh, William Ball, who, who ran ACT in San Francisco. And I, my, my prized possession at 16 was not my driver's license, but my season tickets. I was the only kid who wanted to see House of Bernardo Alba on their 16th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that ran as a yeah, repertory. Now yes. I understand yes. everything. Yes. It explains it all. <laughs> but, but that was a repertory company. If you were an actor, so you might see someone on one night, you know, who, you know Peter Donat, who would play a role on one, and the next night he's a totally different character in animation. You might animate Ariel, the Little Mermaid, and the next time out you're animating the Beast and Beauty and the Beast. And, and that we have a background <laughs> department, which is a scenic department, and, a, and all these people are in departments, like a repertory theater. So it does run that way, and that's my other life. Before you pick up, David, you have some background also in uh, not-for-profit. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a playwright, which basically means my existence is not-for-profit. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I suppose having, I guess I've written about a dozen plays, and uh, some of them have been produced commercially, um, and Butterfly on Broadway, and Golden Child on Broadway more recently. Um, many of them at the not-for-profits, and then many of them at uh, theaters that are smaller than not-for-profits, which is to say that while they're technically not-for-profits, they don't sort of fall into the uh, theater communications group model, the bigger theaters like the Goodman, uh, or the Taper, or Joe Papp, or the Papp Theater. Um, so I'd never done a musical before, um, I'd only done straight plays, and um, Bob and uh, Stuart came to me one day and asked if I was uh, willing to kind of come in and be part of this team. And I suppose I should go into a bit of the history of the book of the musical, which is sort of the dialogue part. Um, the talking bits? Yeah, the, the parts that people don't necessarily really come to the musical to see. But, we like to call it uh, blah, 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 song, <laughs> right. blah, 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 dance, blah, 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 reprieves. Right. So, so they asked me if I wanted to do the blah blahs, and um, yeah. uh, I guess the history of the book, and, and Tom and Stuart, maybe you can help me out with this, um, a, a writer named Linda Wolverton, who had done Beauty and the Beast, um, had been working on this for a number of years, um, ever since the beginning, she'd been the book writer, and um, when Bob came into the project, uh, Bob had ideas about um, just taking the script to the next step. I mean, I think all of us know that 
uh, I mean, who do this, know that you start out with a draft, and uh, we're called playwrights, W-R-I-G-H-T, because you're constantly kind of crafting away at the thing. You're changing things, and any sort of history of a play or history of a musical involves numerous rewrites and things being thrown out. So Linda Wolverton had gotten the book to a certain stage, which was a good stage, you know, and a lot of the characters worked, the structure basically worked, uh, the plot was clear, she'd done some really smart things like um, making Aida um, the lead and Amneris, who's the other woman in the romantic triangle, uh, making them eventually friends as opposed to in Verity where, where Amneris continues to be sort of Aida's enemy. So that it sort of made Amneris a more complicated character. Um, and, you know, yet there were, it still needed to go a ways. And uh, when Bob was brought into the project, he did uh, a rewrite of it. He did a draft, which was great and brought in a lot of new ideas, uh, such as the, uh, we have a museum bookend structure so that the musical starts in the present and comes back to the present, uh, and then you know, goes to ancient Egypt in the middle. Um, and I guess as a, as a playwright, uh, Bob and Stuart just determined that I might be useful uh, in terms of my own craft. And I thought, well, you know, what can I really bring to this? And I, I felt, you know, it's a story about people who are dealing with a legacy of hate, um, of kind of racial strife, social strife, and to the, the extent to which love is or is not able to overcome this. And this seemed to me to be a really interesting theme. And Bob certainly was going uh, a ways in that direction and had the desire to explore that. Um, and it was a great group of people, and I loved the score. And, um, you know, frankly, I also thought, uh, as an Asian American, it's not you know, we tend to get sort of racially typecast, and this is an opportunity to work on something which one wouldn't necessarily expect me to do, and I thought that that showed um, great kind of courage and thought on Disney's part, so, um, so I signed on. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Linda, because I look at the panel, and they're all men here, and actually, uh, Linda was part of that process, and, and Natasha Katz, mm -hmm. the lighting's also part it. isn't an all-male operation. <laughs> <laughs> Bob uh, is actually a woman. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yes, and then there's the elusive Director, Phyllis. Director, playwright, woman. Right. <laughs> there's also the uh, elusive Phyllis. Thank you, yes, yeah. right. Uh, but I think, uh, Paul, uh, yeah. how did you feel that the music was going along in the new, along the new lines of thinking that David was bringing to it and Bob? How about the music? Did it conform? Did Elton have to change things? Did, did you change them? Yeah, you always change things uh, when there's a, a new director because there's a new, there's a new vision. Hey, can I ask a, you a question? Yeah. How did I become the new director of this show, ah, suddenly, in the narrative? Yeah. Do you want to yes, hear the narrative of that? Oh, well, we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back, we'll come okay, back we'll to come that. Back we'll come back to that. Okay. <laughs> a lot of the, there's a lot of incidental music in the show. Uh, the songs are written, as you know, by Elton John and Tim Rice, and they have, they're written like pop songs. And I used a, a Verity as an inspiration for a lot of the uh, connecting music and tried to bridge the, uh, uh, opera and rock and roll world with that. And in Chicago, I was thought of Chicago as the workshop for Bob and Wayne Salento, who came in as choreographer, and also David. They didn't have any three workshops like we had before. So this, this felt like a new workshop, and I tried out new ideas, uh, which we actually changed quite a bit uh, in between Chicago and Broadway. So it did change. Uh, on the narrative, on the narrative, before we leave Atlanta and get to Chicago, right. which you were about to do, uh, tell us how that was structured financially. 
you said it was the Alliance Theater production, but surely, surely you had some financial input in it. Sure we did, because what we can do is, there, there's a mutual gain there. The, and, and the agreement with the Alliance, of course, and the Alliance is now connected to it. You'll see its name on the program, and it mm -hmm. benefits financially from the show, which is a, a great thing. And having come from nonprofits, we all know that help in the creation and development of work that goes on to mm -hmm. a commercial end is a, a huge piece of what can support a nonprofit. So the Alliance stays connected. We provided enhancement money to the Alliance Theater. We provide some more money than what they would normally spend on a production of their season. What would they normally spend? In well, cause you're going to ask that, and then you're going to ask bit. how much I gave. Gee, I wonder how you figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> and as much as I would like to um, share with you the finances of it, because I don't have investors other than one, which is the shareholders of the Walt Disney Company, um, I've never had to talk about how much we spend on the show. And, and even and today, I find that I'll avoid that, too. <laughs> <laughs> What's an interesting thing, I can take a side note, though. It was once reported in, in a, a fine, upstate New York uh, newspaper that um, it was irrelevant to us how much the show cost. And that actually is not what we said or whatever we intend. It's keenly important to us what we spend on the show. What we do believe, though, is it should be irrelevant to the audience what we have spent on the show. Whether you do a tiny little two-hander and it moves an audience, or a, a very large-scale show like The Lion King, which I also produced, that clearly there's a lot of money on the stage, probably not as much has been speculated of late, <laughs> but um, that, that shouldn't be what you enjoy. You shouldn't enjoy it more or less because of that. You should enjoy the work. And so because of that, we've always felt that by not talking about the money, we could get people to focus on the work, decide you like the work, you not like the work. It's very important to us, something that, that is people should know is that we are held accountable. We are a publicly held company. We make this work, it's commercial work, and where other shows are commercial works that benefit the investors in that show, our work, our commercial work on this show, benefits the shareholders of the Walt Disney Company. So we are held accountable and we are publicly held. Is that clear that you have no investors other than the board of directors of Disney? Right, we do not take in outside you money don't take for outside. this production of Aida, nor did we do that for The Lion King. Could I yeah, ask what is a creative no, producer? It's the first time that I remember seeing that title on there as a creative producer. What's the difference between a creative producer? Oh, no, well, actually, that's, a, you know, you're, you, Roy found a, a kind of a, a hybrid of how to describe my job, which is I'm a studio executive. I am the, I'm a senior vice president for the Walt Disney Company, and my job working for Tom mm -hmm. and Peter is to manage the day-to-day -day development and production of our work. So I think the title creative producer, it, it wouldn't imply that Tom and Peter are not creative producers. He didn't have to say that because he works for me. <laughs> but no, but we just all kind of work now. together. Yeah, and I think that's important for people to know, too, is that people think, oh, Disney, they think, you know, thousands of people. Well, the fact is the theater team is a small team. It's not much bigger than the people On the creative around. side, yeah. it's really the three and of us the, Yeah, the same is true with marketing and, and, and production. I mean, we are all, it's a small group of people. It's not hundreds of people who have opinions. Well, back to your non-financial disclosures. disclosures. <laughs> uh, so we provide enhancement money to them. Then we mount the show. Had that production come to New York, which it did not, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we, ha we, we could have taken that production there, beefed it up even more, and brought it right in. And we elected <coughs> not to do that. You know, if I might interrupt, we actually elected not to do that before we opened it there. It wasn't about what happened. We had no theater booked in New York. We had no plans to go to New York. We had no contracts for people to go to New York because I think we felt ourselves 
that the we most important thing is what do we have here? What shape is this show in? We it loved the material, loved the music, but we also knew that it, it was a new show. It wasn't Lion King or Beauty and the Beast evolving from years of, of wonderful dramaturgical work that was done in the animation world. This was a new idea, entirely new project. So we, we wanted to go to Atlanta and stop and then reevaluate. In other words, that was an extension. Atlanta was an extension of your workshop. That's mm -hmm. correct. It it's, was. It's, and, but you knew somewhere along the way yeah. you, were gonna, you were gonna do well, a commercial production. The goal, the goal of course, was yeah. to bring it to New York. The, for us, and I, I know this may sound crazy, but it's for us the comfort of being willing to say, this is not right yet. Interesting for me, I do this in two different worlds. I have a world in which, in the film business, where I can put a film up and throw half of it out and none of you know. Right. So no one in this room realizes that things that have been you know, moderately successful, like the movie version of The Lion King or mm -hmm. films like Toy Story, where wholesale, massive sections of the movie were thrown out, songs were tossed out, turned things around, relieved directors of their jobs, and mount the film, because it's all very private. The greatest asset of the theater is that it's live. The greatest liability of the theater is that it's live. So you're all watching. Mm -hmm. So every night we go up there and, and metaphorically we pull our pants down and say, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then you pull them back up and you start again the next day. So the problem is it's so public. So when you do it, and particularly, and I know this, you tease me about it, when you work for the Walt Disney Company, you have a huge bullseye on you. You know, you can't just sneak around and go do a production somewhere and say, oh, let's see if it works. Everybody came to Atlanta to see it. Right. Do you want to pick up your narrative? Yes. Well, we got, we got to Atlanta, and there was enhancement money was that got <laughs> Atlanta off the hook. And somewhere yeah, and, along yeah, they, the way... They, they, they did just fine, right. because they, they had their subscription series. The show was virtually right. sold out. And they did just fine. And we said, we're not... And also, because you go to a regional theater, you're under a LORT contract, not a production contract. It's much cheaper to mount the show. You can do it on a different scale. So it benefited us and them. A LORT meaning a regional uh, theater yeah, uh, contracts yeah. as opposed to the equity regional theater. Yeah, Broadway contracts. The equity, it's an equity contract, but right. it's not the right. production contract on Broadway. Um, it's the contract that right. the good ones yeah. yeah. It allows you to be a little more fluid. It's not quite as expensive to mount the show. And, and other not-for-profits, even in New York, operate under yes. that uh, Lincoln Center. Which is also a Broadway house, right. which right. is confusing. <laughs> uh, so we'll talk about the Tonys in another complete seminar, <laughs> if um, you like. Do you want to pick up the narrative? Well, yes, except that the risk-reward, that uh -huh. you, you still have to measure that before you, you, oh, you leave bet. Atlanta. Now, interestingly, I mean, there's, there's two things that happen in Atlanta. One is a major financial decision, um, which is you can decide at this point to abandon ship. You can say, you know what, we have spent enough money on this. We've taken as far as we want to go. We learned that we don't want to do it, and you weigh against your own passion for the material to how much you've spent on it, and you can abandon. That's perfectly appropriate. All businesses do that. You start something up, you try it, it doesn't work, you shut it down. The nature of business is that. Without risk, there's never any kind of success. So we said, well, we could do that, but we felt, you know, mm -hmm. so we felt there's something there in the material. And in fairness, the original director of the piece, Robert Jess Roth, who directed our completely lovely production of Beauty and the Beast, was the director of this production. And, and the entire creative team from Beauty and the Beast had been working on it. And um, although, for example, although the pyramid failed, it was a beautiful piece and, and, and really had a, a lovely concept at its core. Um, and the production had so much to offer and was shaped by Rob Roth in terms of it, a lot of its music. A lot of that early work was all shaped by that team. But we get to a point when we've said, we're not going to bring this, thing, this, this production to Broadway as it is, and we want to change it. We want to we 
alter it. We, we still want, want to do some stuff to it. And Stuart and I and Peter Schneider have the option at that point to decide who we're going to carry forward. In the same way that we can decide we're going to carry forward with the composer and lyricist, we're going to carry forward with some cast, maybe not some of that cast, and also the creative team. And we had the option at that point to change because we knew we weren't going to bring that production in. We could attack it one more time. We had the right to make that change. And at that point, each of us, Stuart, myself, and Peter, all knew Bob. And we all knew Bob from completely different ways. We, but we all knew Bob. And we asked Bob to look at the material and say, do you have a take on it? Do you, you know, I said, these are the things that I love about it. These are the things that aren't working for me yet. And Bob reviewed all of it. And we had a dinner in Los Angeles. And at that time, he sat down and laid out some very specific dramaturgical stuff that he would do to the show. He looked at the material. You didn't look at it in Atlanta. No, just the, just, show. just the show. I was very distant paper. from the, I mean, and David and I weren't connected with the show in Atlanta at, at all. Right. So, so and I, I feel like I had the great advantage of bringing a very fresh set of eyes uh, to the show because I, you know, I, I just wasn't involved. I was working on other things. When you were looking at, at the material, yeah. how about the music? How did you hear well, the that's, music? Well, uh, that's what I heard first. I mean, I, I, I was sent a script and I was sent uh, a, a CD uh, of Elton John singing the songs from the show uh, that he and, he and Tim Rice had written. And uh, I just fell in love, really kind of at first sight, which happens. And th those are the projects that I always feel I have to do, you know, when I hear something. Now, I have to admit, I've always wanted to do a Broadway musical. Uh, I grew up listening to Broadway musicals. I mean, I grew up in a little town in downstate Illinois, like probably a lot of people who watch this program. I guess they're all not in downstate <laughs> Illinois, but they grew downstate somewhere, you know, not connected to the theater world. And uh, my, my exposure to musicals was really listening to the original cast albums of My Fair Lady and Oklahoma and uh, uh, Company was, was a big influence. And I would stage them in my head, uh, you know, I mean, it was sort of pathological, but I couldn't help <laughs> but hear a show, and I would create my own version of it in my head. And I even actually, you know, at a very young age, kind of put together puppet theaters uh, and was moving around. How strange is that? You know, in garages, puppet theaters to the music. Well, band. actually, in fairness, boys call it puppet theaters. Girl call it, girls call it dolls. Dolls. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny how many directors you find have a very similar background. You know, you just have a desire at a very early age to sort of make a play happen. It doesn't matter whether it's dolls. In, in Julie Taymor's case, it's never disappeared. Right? It's, all just, it's always manipulating. It's always manipulating the people and seeing how the strings work and, and all of that. I mean, she's a very fortunate artist. Uh, you know, I became a director is what I did. I just kind of, my, my life began as a director. When did you become a director? Uh, about age five. In about Broadway, off-Broadway, what? I wasn't, offered any, <laughs> I wasn't offered any Broadway shows to my knowledge at age five. Uh, I, I, my, my work was mainly confined to the garage. Uh, but I knew, you know, I, I knew from a very early age that I wanted to tell stories. And I didn't really know what that meant. So. Uh, you know, I wrote plays, and I, I, I did these puppet things, and I listened to musicals, and I eventually started studying theater and doing theater, and it, it, and it became kind of what I've always done, uh, which is telling stories. And, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether it's Arthur Miller, Eugene O'Neill, Elton John, Tim Rice, Richard Rogers, Lorenz Hart. These are great, great storytellers and great, great artists, and I know that I have an extraordinary response when I hear something or read something. And, you know, I grew up listening to Elton John's music as well, and, and I've also been one of the people who've always said, you know, I think that there are these pop artists who are really the major composers of our times. They're the ones who've written soundtracks to our lives. 
you know? The same way another generation grew up with George Gershwin and Cole Porter as the soundtrack to their lives. I grew up with like John Lennon and, and Elton John and Joni Mitchell, uh, you know, and Stephen Stills and, and a whole generation of composers. Paul Simon, major one, the Beatles. You know, and you go, for somebody of my generation, we have this sort of idealistic sense of, well, why don't these people make musicals? You know, I love these people, I like musicals, and, and you know, it's been tried, and we continue to try, and I, I, I think we see experiments in it, and we see things. So I found something very moving and beautiful about the courage that Elton and Tim even had to create a work that was going to be compared to Verdi, unfavorably, that was going to have odious comparisons put on it, but yet I found it intensely moving in its, its initial listening. I, I thought the songs were first rate. I thought they were songs that were instantly memorable. You know, that thing we all talk about, I want to leave the theater humming. Well, I could hear this uh, recording in one listening and I was able to hum it, you know, which I thought was a positive thing, that these were great songs that, that stayed in your head. And I also thought that all of the people involved, Tim and Elton and Linda Wolverton, whose script I read, did just such a beautiful job in telling a unique slant on the story. They weren't just doing, as, 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 as uh, Chris pointed out, and, and David, Verity's story. They started it earlier. I mean, Verity really cheats big time, you know, when he brings a character out and goes, you know, I have it in the first aria. He I can't have, defend himself. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But there are plenty of others who will, so it's not as if he's a lonely voice in the wilderness. You know, in, in the Verdi opera, the, the Radames, the, 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 the central male figure, comes out on stage, he sings a wonderful aria where he says, you know, I have this big problem. Big, big problem. I'm in love with my slave Aida, mm -hmm. and I'm to be married to the Princess Amneris. And how great, you can just start it off like bang. <laughs> right. And I think what all of the people prior to me did was go, now that's very interesting. How, what would a slave master fall in love with his slave? Let's take that back to the meeting of Rodimus and Aida, perhaps on the slave ship, and see how this relationship, so our first act, really, of our Aida, basically takes the time that it takes to arrive at Verdi's first uh, aria. And I just thought it was original and imaginative and a lot of fun, and I'd always wanted to do one. So you said yes in, yeah. at the dinner in Los Angeles? I did. Right. Then what did you do? He was from Chicago. Is that what brought you to Chicago? Yeah. No. no. Actually, no. The, <laughs> the, the, two odd yeah, things happened the with the show that were fortuitous, and it's the geographic connection. One is that Elton John lives in Atlanta when he's in the United States and, and, and spends a lot of time in Atlanta. It had nothing to do with why we went to the Alliance Theater. We went to the Alliance Theater because of Kenny Leon and the Alliance. It happened to be great because Elton was nearby, so he could be there a lot during that first production in Atlanta. We're actually approached by the, by the folks from Fox Theatricals in Chicago who said, we would love to do, if you want to do this production again, they came to see it in Atlanta. And they said, if you want to do this again, if you're going to keep working at it, bring it to Chicago. Meanwhile, we show it to Bob, and then it works out great because Bob's from there. But in fairness, we yeah. rehearsed the show in New York. So we were here at 890 Broadway rehearsing it, and then took it to Chicago for, this, for its tryout mm -hmm. period, and then, of course, came back to New York for another rehearsal period, and then we opened it. But tell about financing your, uh, in <laughs> Chicago. Well, here's an interesting thing. Now it's our show. It's a commercial property headed to Broadway. This was not a, a co-production in Chicago with a, a regional theater. This was ours. So it's a had, classic out-of-town triangle. Yeah, this was a very... Th this in, in the old-fashioned yeah. sense, yeah. I would now say. Now we were on the model of what we did for Beauty and the Beast and mm -hmm. The Lion King. And how long did you book Chicago? 
Oh, eight, weeks. eight weeks. Eight weeks. Well, that's not quite classic, but uh, yeah, that's long. long. Right. Mm -hmm. And well, how long did you did you start a rehearsal well, wait, wait, in Chicago? Was it eight weeks of, we did eight weeks performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we preview for four. See, for us, the work process is a five or six week rehearsal period, a fairly well, like three three weeks of tech, and then four weeks of previews. So we're actively working and modeling the show during that entire period. So the run is about four weeks from the time we open. And that was a long preview period in Chicago. Yeah, well, let long. me ask. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. What's the classic? The old model. What is? What the would have, you go to? You go the to oldest Haven, model. You go to you Boston. Yes, the oldest model. Six weeks. We rehearse and rehearse, and out of right. a hat comes. Uh, would you <laughs> do two cities or two? Uh, you, when you could afford to, you did. Yeah. Always Boston, did two cities. You tried to do. But yes. three or four weeks each. And Boston. Right. Three weeks. Three weeks would be a lot. Right. You could do two but, weeks in one. But it was a two. similar length of time. You just would do. It, you can't move a show that easily. Right. Oh, That's when you can move a show. You can close the show and back on Broadway right. before you go into your rehearsals. You're now on Broadway. Who did the casting? Because most of your casting of, of yeah. the, the shows that you've done on Broadway have been almost offbeat in the sense that you've not taken the typical name producers. You've reached for somebody that had quality, and, and that was the... I, 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 I think that's it. true. Of, I have to point out, too, for Disney, I mean, that in my opinion, nobody else at, at age five, six, seven, or eight has ever asked me to direct a Broadway musical. Uh, Julie Taymor had not been asked to do a Broadway musical. Well, that, that's what I meant. So now who did the casting here? Now, Aida, and you're on Broadway, well, and you're going to yet. open, so, so that we can get a kind of a... Building we had some. We, we had a few people. In, in particular, we had Heather Headley, right. who's Aida, and Sherry Renee Scott, who's M. Neris, who had Atlanta. done it with us in Atlanta. Sherry, Sherry had done the first workshop. Sherry so did every she's workshop been with us okay. for four but years. But those were my options. Those were really. It was my decision. I mean, there was a certain point where I really do feel that after all of this work and all of this development and all of these things had taken place, that once I signed on uh, with the company. They basically said, okay, you know, and I, I also said, uh, rather daringly, I said, I want to have uh, a whack at a couple of drafts on this, because I think, I, I, as much as I love the story, I think I have a, a very clear idea of what I would like to do in terms of these relationships. And I'd like to have access to moving some of the songs around, I want to hear some songs that were cut from the show in Atlanta. And I also think that there's a possibility we may require some new, I mean, mm -hmm. I did what a director does when you're handed a piece of material, you know, you go, I want to make it my own. Uh, I want to go with it. I've got a very clear idea of who I want to have work on it, what we need to do. And the producers basically said, okay, you know, so I had a close relationship with the producers. But at this point, I think a director takes charge of the show and starts to bring a team of designers. Uh, David was brought in, uh, mm -hmm. asked David, wh whose work I admire tremendously, mm -hmm. to work with me on the book. And, and then what about Bob Coley? What about. Well, that was very much in the same process, very quickly. That once. Uh, I was literally the captain of the ship in that old metaphor, you know. It's like, uh, you know, I, Stuart said to me, who would you like to have design this work? Who, if you had anybody in the world, who would you like to have? And I said, I want Bob Crowley. I think he's a genius. And Bob and I would known each other. Uh, we'd been friends. We'd never worked together. I thought this might be a great opportunity. And Stuart said, I think that's the perfect idea. I had the same idea. And very quickly, Bob came on. Natasha came on. Uh, but he came on as both costume designer yes. and set designer. Yes, he did. Well. That was Bob's decision. That was that my point. decision and Bob's that we should mm -hmm. do that. And mm -hmm. as the director, I worked with the producers to make other decisions, which was to continue working with 
with, 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 with Paul, because mm -hmm. I thought his work had been extraordinary. Natasha Katz is just a brilliant lighting designer. She had done Atlanta, but I wanted mm -hmm. to continue and develop a relationship with her. Uh, and then I brought in casting director, uh, Bernard Telsey, who I've worked with fairly extensively. And said, who pays the casting director? Walt Disney Company. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, they're paying all the checks. For yeah. <laughs> in, in general, the casting director is, is paid by the producer. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes out of the production. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. it's, it's part of the same, you know, it's part of the production monies to produce. Yeah. So can we go a step by step now of where we go? Well, I was going to ask how much he paid the casting director. <laughs> <laughs> Roy has a fascination, but it, it, this is the juncture when what we did is we sat down. This is, I'll talk about money with you because I know you love that. And the, what we had to do was we sat down with Bob and said, well, here's the deal. We want to do an out-of-town tryout. We think that is essential, and that's expensive. And it's a luxury that, that we, we wanted to provide ourselves. We could have spent more in the physical production in New York, but we wanted to have that. We had a very specific, what we call a box. Hmm. We are going to pay for only this much money. So what can we fit in that box? You'll notice when you see the production that the floor doesn't open up with things leaping out of it. There's a, you know, that th th we had very specific mechanical issues, how many winch motors we could rent, how many lighting instruments we could have, because there's rentals on all of that. We set a very specific budget. It was pretty tight. We said we want to have, um, you know, we want to control how big the cast is. We'd had children in the previous production. We took children out, swapped them out. Bob did a lot of rethinking about casting and swings and who covers what. And we set very specific financial parameters for both the capitalization of the show as well as, which is, as you know, the most important thing is the running cost, the weekly running cost of the show. And then you have to set a model that says, can you pay back? in a reasonable amount of time. And we've all heard these shows, I mean, shows that run for you know, two years, three years, and never pay back. So, you know, very successful shows to, the, to your, one's appearance, but never pay back. So for us, the ability to pay back, which means you have a reasonable running cost, so that you know, as, your, as your weekly box office goes up and down, that you're always trying to stay in profit to pay back the, the, the initial investment. Stuart worked really hard on this with our whole business team to say, what is the box? Then we offer that. To, to Bob Falls and Bob Crowley and say, now you have to figure out how to do this. And you could never do this without people who are really want to partner with you and are committed and understand the fundamental Yeah, let me, let me say something, because I think it's important around money, because it is important mm -hmm. to talk about that, you know, there's, there's always a budget, you know. Every show has a budget. And that is, becomes uh, sort of the parameters with which you create the show. There's always, also always a creative tension that can get explosive, can be difficult, can be problematic. Every single show producer, every musical produced, has a producing team with a limited amount of money mm -hmm. and a team of directors, uh, designers and artists with unlimited vision, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> challenging <laughs> each other. The Apollonian Dionysian conflict. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing <laughs> metaphor. Now, and I'm living proof to sit here and say that uh, one of the popular mythologies is that Disney just has unlimited pots of money to spend on production. Well, they may have it, but they don't. Well, they, they don't share it with me. <laughs> uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, it's, it's a very normal uh, and, 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 you know, extremely tedious part of the process where basically you have a budget. And, and Bob Crowley and I, you know, were very responsible, I think, in our collaboration with everybody because we wanted the same thing. We wanted to have a show, like every Broadway musical, a profitable, successful hit show. You know what I mean? That works within the parameters of the initial budget. And, and we worked very hard to create a show 
Uh, and every show's created in that, in, that, in, that, in that way. And this particular show, one of the things I'm most proud of is I think it's actually a really beautiful, really elegant production that puts the story, the music, and the lyrics out front. And while it's spectacularly designed, it's really not a relative of the mega musicals of the 80s and the early 90s, which were all about spectacle and mm -hmm. size. I mean, Bob Crowley and I each have done, uh, well, Bob Crowley alone has done hundreds of productions of Shakespeare. I've done not that many, but quite a few. And you learn from Shakespeare how to tell a story on a bare stage using lights and a piece of silk or a boat that represents a larger boat. And we applied all of these skills that we've learned doing Shakespeare, for example, to doing a musical. And we wanted to do it with the same economy, the same simplicity, the same beauty, and the same elegance, and not make it all about scenery and costumes and money and expense. I mean, it takes a lot of money sometimes to do simplicity, but it was all done within the realm of a creative, normal collaboration with a producing entity. Yeah, and it has to rise and fall, it has to stand on its own two feet and support itself. Okay. Paul, when, when you um, help select this creative team, do you make a arrangements that are conventional in terms of the royalty structure, or are we not allowed Stewart? to talk about Stewart, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, conventional in the sense of what other Broadway producers do. Yes. We, we work with, yeah, very closely. I mean, Bob is a SSD&C director. Participants, and they're participants in they the world. They all participate. As, yeah, we, any other I mean, there are, Disney has its own approach to how we structure deals, predominantly tied to the fact that our model as a producer starts with generally Broadway or the initial production and wants to have a tour or two, like other producers, and an international company or two, and we are particularly interested in the countries among them that are uh, non-English speaking countries. So we sometimes break the parameters of the dramatist guild in terms of how we structure the deal for purposes of the big picture producing. But everybody's paid royalties and ongoing fees. We have to take a risk that. against the upside, which is part of our structure. And one of the things that we do, which is, which is, you know, and it's becoming slightly more common as institutions begin to produce, but we would offer, um, uh, from, a, from a writing perspective, from a composer, we would offer money up front and thereby then have, you know, so our, our royalty package may look different than other That's producers. Right. But there's also very different there is that those people who wrote that material did not write that on spec. If you know, I mean, it, it, the, the classic thing of you decide to write a musical, and so you go create your musical in the hopes that someone will produce it. You wrote that for free. It was our idea. We took that idea to artists to write it and paid them to write that. And then they, of course, enjoy a royalty on it. But it's a, it, it, if you were to examine our books, which, by the way, are not available, um, <laughs> you, would, you would see a, a different relationship there because they get paid money up front, which is not, has not historically been the model. It will, normally, I think we would look for a musical to try to keep our royalties 10, 12 percent. Mm -hmm. I presume that uh, uh, in various incarnations now, you may be approaching that, notwithstanding the fact that you've hired them, but that's speculation and I won't do <laughs> that. Paul, I notice that you have a large musical staff that uh, may, most Broadway shows don't usually support such a large staff in production. It seems that you have several people with titles. Oh, I see. yes. Uh, well, Paul's well, got several titles. Paul has several titles. I think that's oh, it, yeah. <laughs> well, we have, uh, I have a, two co-orchestrators, uh, co Guy Babylon and Steve Margoshes, and a co-arranger, Guy Babylon, and who's a very important uh, link in the, uh, the chain between Elton and, and the show. He's, uh, Elton, he's in Elton's band, 
and he is Elton's programmer. And he did the original demos with Elton. Uh, I should, should explain how Elton writes, uh, has written songs throughout his career and wrote these songs. He writes from lyric, he gets the lyric, and he goes into the studio and, and sings and plays. That's how he writes, because uh, he's, a great, he's a great writer of vocal music. And as everybody knows, he's got a great voice. And I'd say most of his composing comes from inside. It's not a, you know, a classic, I write down the notes. He has to improvise. And that's one of the reasons you end up getting those, those tunes that you go out and hum. The other thing that he does also is, uh, as he's doing that, it's very much, I'd say that this score, while accessible as pop music, it's identifiably Elton John. It's very important. It doesn't sound like anybody else. And that's, that's extremely important. It sounds like one, one voice. Now, Guy Babylon helped uh, arrange these demos and put synthesizer music to it. Then he came, he was with me in all the workshops and co-orchestrated. And then we brought in Steve Margotius, who is a standard Broadway orchestrator. In other words, he, he writes out all the material and is very uh, fluent with woodwinds and classical orchestration. So that was a, it was a great collaboration for us in that respect. Well, now, it's time, it's time to hear how the press was handling all of this and I how you know. dealt with it. We, we got little dribs and drabs about the problems in Atlanta. Now the show is mounted in Chicago, and because there's general, I think that's how far we, we got. Right. We got the show mounted I've in Chicago. I've lost my narrative. Yeah. It's right well, here. We've gone like this. We're doing fine. Right. We're in Chicago, and now, Chris, again, there's, everybody's looking to Disney, and what did they do? And you've handled it masterfully. Tell oh, us what you. you've done. Well, the, the reality is that no show can go out of town and be quiet. It's for, I mean, it's, I think it's hard for any show because Variety will come and review you, which happens. Um, other journalists will come down and talk about you and write about you, either favorably or not. We had a lot of things going on. We had the fact this was the next show after The Lion King. Oh, how can they top that? Well, you have to put that out of the back of your mind. But we had a lot of things going in our favor. You had to put it in my mind. I had to put it in my mind. You guys, you guys didn't. But we had some things going for us that... that um, we figured out pretty early on, which was, uh, and when we got to New York, it was clear. First of all, we had a show that audiences really liked. We also had Elton John, our mercurial friend Elton John, who has strong opinions, and he uh, staged a, uh, a walkout one Sunday, which sort of left us all a little bit reeling, but when he came back a week later, because he had a few quibbles about the way the show was going, he came back and became our best ambassador. And when I have a, when someone presents me with a project, I always think, well, if I have a star, or if I have a great show to, whatever, what, are, what are my tools to make the show work? And in this case, I had a lot of them. I had the, is Disney going to make this work story? I had Elton John, who's perhaps one of the biggest stars in the entire world, who happened to be a giant cheerleader for this show and was simultaneously opening a movie. So Elton was doing a lot of publicity for us. And then we had this incredible thing that has happened to us, was that we have three young, sexy stars. And so we're seeing lines at the box office every morning of kids lining up to buy $20 tickets, Isabel, which I know you'll be happy to mm -hmm. hear, um, who are kind of changing the way the audience m make up. It's a younger crowd coming to Broadway. And then on top of that, you have a breakout star in Heather Headley, who has become that rare thing, a young woman becoming a star on Broadway. And it's, it's been phenomenal. So, you know, I know I sound like a cheerleader for the, the good things. You're a professional cheerleader. I'm a professional yeah. cheerleader. But there are a lot of things we deal with. Of course, we deal with... What are people going to think? How are we going to make this look right? And, and uh, 
the big part of this is what image do you send out to the world? What does the show look like? What are they hearing about it? And that's all very carefully controlled. We, we, we pride ourselves on trying to do the very best we can do with what's offered and so that people hear what's good about it. I mean, the fact was the show changed titles from Atlanta to Chicago to New York. It was Elaborate Lives, The Legend of Aida. It became Aida. That's what people called it. Um, we had a lot of print and things written about this show. The reality for me is if people walk out of the show liking it, the word of mouth is good, I can't make that happen. I can't buy that. And that's what I'm dealing with now, is that people love it. And that makes my job a whole lot easier. I can't convince, I get on the phone and spend most of my day trying to get people to write things about a show or do something. I can't make them do it if they didn't like it. And what happened on The Lion King, which was a phenomenon, frankly, it will never happen to me again, I don't think, um, happened on Aida when people started talking about, I love those songs, I like these guys, I like this girl, I like these three people. So the fact is every show has its own blueprint you follow some basic rules. A lot of it's negative. A lot of it's dealing with negative damage control things. But the rest of it is taking what's good. And when you bring people in like Bob and Bob Crowley and David and Heather and Sherry and Adam, I mean, it's kind of a slam dunk. Well, so I think what's special is that there were a lot of shots being taken uh, at uh, the show. And you were somehow able to still get positive things out to, as well in the press, notwithstanding everybody picking up on the Atlanta and then Disney and moving now to Chicago. You were you put a spin on it. I think the main thing is the cool. guys cared about it. I mean the fact is Peter, Tom and Stuart really believed in the project. And for all of us who love the theater, who make our livings in the theater, you want people to do that. It it makes me angry when people say, Oh well they just open their checkbook. The fact is, they cared. They wanted this to work. They wanted Heather Headley and Sherry Scott to play those roles on Broadway. That's a great thing. With Heather, Sherry, and now Adam become stars on Broadway because of this project, it's because of these guys. That's why it happens. So I think in, in my case, I was arguing defensively a little bit about the fact that, look, give this show a chance. Come see these performances. Come hear this music. And I think that's, you know, yes, there was a lot of work going on. I will, I will admit to that. But the fact is, we, we had a good product that we believed in. You know, and our process we're, was we're going to have to stop for a, in a minute in, in order to stretch and, and change whatever has to be changed. But I'd like you to think about, my question to you is that you have been press representative for all of the Disney shows on Broadway. Is part of your job as press public relations as well? for Disney, not necessarily just for the production? Is that part of your Well, it's your something job? I think about all the time. I mean, I, no, I, I am a consultant. I do other Broadway shows as well. And I'm only a tiny piece of the Disney organization. But I definitely know that part of my job is representing Disney on Broadway. And that's a very important thing. From um, the very first one, of Beauty and the absolutely, Beast, right? Absolutely. I'm sorry, but we now have to change and stand up and whatever it is that you do, do quickly. And then we will come back and continue the American Theatre Wing seminar in working in the theatre. I like to do. This is CUNY TV, Channel Seventy Five. to the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre. Before we return to our panelists, I would like to remind you that the Wing is more than a sponsor of seminars and more than our famous Tony Awards for excellence in the theatre. 
The Wing is an organization whose year-round programs are dedicated to serving the theater and the community. Since one of our goals is developing new audiences for the theater, we have created meaningful programs for students like Introduction to Broadway, which began eight years ago and has enabled more than 80,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, many for the very first time. And through our theater in school program, theater professionals like these on our seminar panels go directly into classrooms to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. In addition, we have a hospital program, which dates back to World War II when we operated our legendary stage door canteens. Today's version of the program brings talent from Broadway, off-Broadway, and the cabaret world to entertain patients in hospitals, senior day and nursing facilities, aid centers, and child care facilities in the New York area, bringing the magic of theater to those who are unable to get out to enjoy the theater themselves. We are proud of the work we do and are delighted with the wonderful working relationship we have with the theatrical community. We are grateful to our members, to everyone who makes possible all that the American Theatre Wing does. So let's get back to our seminar on production. The production is Aida, that exciting show that's on Broadway. And I'd like to start part two with a question from this whole panel. I want to know what happened when you moved your theater uh, opening from the palace where uh, Beauty and the Beast was to another theater and in order to make room for Aida. As far as I know, I don't think that's been done before. Can you well, talk about that? Isabel, what, 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 what you're referring to is we we had Beauty and the Beast running at the Palace Theater, um, which for us is a rent. We rent that from the Nederlanders. We own the New Amsterdam Theater. That's ours, where we have Lion King. And we wanted to bring Aida in, and the Palace was an ideal spot to put Aida in. But we didn't want to close Beauty and the Beast, because although it, was, it had been a long-running show, it was doing very, very well. And so we thought, we know what theaters are available, and everyone knows there's a great pressure on what theater you can find and what you can go to. And it occurred to us that to ensure the long life of Beauty and the Beast, we could move the production. We could move that, which had happened before. There was precedent for that. We moved the production to the Lunt Fontaine, and the Nederlanders, in preparation for that, restored the theater for us. So we moved Beauty to the Lunt, which has now secured it. It's doing remarkably well. In fact, Beauty and the Beast is doing better business now than it was two years ago. Um, you know, partly it's just showmanship. You get, you know, you, the show looks great in there. It, it, it fits the theater really well. The theater's great. It got some attention. So the show is running very well over there. And then it freed up the palace for us to put Aida in, which now allows us to have three shows running simultaneously. Um, we got very lucky because the Nederlanders were very eager to have two of their theaters filled. And in fact, Lion King, which is, you know, we're now sitting here, what month is this? April of uh, 2000, Lion King opens uh, at the Pantages in Los Angeles, which is a Nederlander theater uh, in Los Angeles um, coming October. So that we actually tried to figure this whole thing out at one time with them. So it's us working with the <coughs> landlord, basically, from whom we rent. But it's not really unusual. You know, you've moved uh, uh, several shows in your, no, in your career. Paul, Les oh. Mis, uh, I think in the shows Les Mis moved from, from the Broadway to uh, the Imperial. Right. And, uh, um, I think no. That was that was the only that was the only one. Forty Second Street literally tap danced across the street from one to the other. That's there was right, a press yeah. agent involved with that move. I mean, right. You know, right. To, well, <laughs> I think that uh, you found 
it's very important that you find the proper venue for your, your show. You well, were lucky that Beauty and the Beast could work well enough at the La Fontaine. In fact, yeah, I think it works. In fact, all of us, you know, think it actually works almost better there. It just fits it, and it's, it's, it's worked out very well for us, and it's allowed us to have three things running in a, in a complex time in New York of trying to secure mm -hmm. theaters. Well, I want to get back to the narrative, you know. I uh, uh, <laughs> I, there are two things I mean, seem to be I can't wait avoiding. to find out how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping it's happy. Yeah, it's right. Right. Yeah. I assume it is, but that's what I'm hoping. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, exactly. I think. <laughs> but we'll see. You, we, I think we got to the show where it was uh, in Chicago, and I don't know if uh, at that point where uh, David and your work began, and Bob, that's what, as a writer, that's where your work began? It's the preparation but, for Chicago. Well, it certainly was, was, our, was our work began right. in Chicago. I mean, that mm -hmm. was our only work, right. and that's the, I mean, for David right. and I. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was the show. Your work began a year before Chicago. Well, it, it began a year, yes, it certainly began a year before that in terms of uh, designing with Bob Crowley and Natasha. Steve Kennedy, who did the sound. I mean, that took a year of, of, of work. What was the time lapse between the close of the, sh sh the show in uh, Atlanta and the opening, the first previews in Chicago? About a year. That was the year? It was about a year. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. I we were very lucky because Bob came on and, very and somehow you managed to keep the show in the public eye all during that time. Well, well that's, that's not hard. hard. That's not hard. Well, I mean, it was, the show was closed for a year, right? And yeah. here we were reading about Aida, and, and eventually I think you kept it very much alive, and you found material to do it. It wasn't just the negativism that came out of it. But it was always going to be, it was always arriving. I mean, there's, right. there's, you know, it's such a rare event, an original that's, musical. That's exactly right. From, you know, a big, original, new musical work uh, is something to celebrate, I think, and something certainly to look forward to. So I think that that had always been on the horizon. You know, there's surprises that pop up in the course of a year or two on a season. But there's usually one or two big anchors. And I think uh, for, for New York City and for the New York theater community, Aida was one of those anchors which was coming. Right. Uh, and Disney was certainly determined to bring it there. I mean, they were taking the show to Chicago uh, as, as preparation for coming here. And that's where David and I did really all of our work. I mean, the same time that we were designing the piece and working to create these new designs, Paul was uh, working with all of us to hone in on the music and the arrangements, and, and there were new songs and there were new things. And David and I were pretty furiously rewriting throughout the process, uh, uh, both in the rehearsal room with the actors. That was here in New York. In New York, rehearsing the show. The mm -hmm. draft was being worked on, new drafts were being worked on, collaboration with the actors. Uh, then we got into previews, technical rehearsals, previews in Chicago, more writing. And then we, uh, you know, we opened in Chicago. Uh, we were reviewed. Uh, we had full houses seeing the show. And another process went, which was a very exciting for me process, which was my second chance to continue to work on the show with all of these collaborators and these producers, where you really evaluate the experience of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And you do it again. You evaluate the experience. You learn what you need to learn. You do more rewrite. I mean, this is not magic. This is how every show, I think, gets put together. Well, tell us, how would you characterize the reviews, the press reviews in Chicago? As um, I guess if you, asking the book writer, uh, I guess they would probably be mixed, but not on the positive side. Uh, so sort of mixed to well negative. Well done. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> second, second career. Well done. You've, you've trained everybody very well. That's Chris. exactly right. But no, we did. We got mixed. We got mixed. Yeah, and, and I think, look, the, you, you're working on any show, and the, 
you always come up with surprises. You always think you're done. And then all of a sudden you realize you're not. Um, and part of the luxury of this process uh, was that we had time to continue to go back to it. I mean, I've worked on shows where, you know, my own plays, where we just didn't have enough time. Time ran out and, and we couldn't fix things. Um, and that is perhaps more the norm, uh, really. Um, so coming out of Chicago, I think, uh, you know, Bob and I put our heads together and there were a lot of things that we wanted to address story-wise. Uh, perhaps in specifics they might have come down to a couple areas which had to do with the love story between Aida and Radames, uh, believing that she was going to fall in love with him, and then also sort of tonal issues. Mm -hmm. That is, you have a show which has a rollicking uh, number in the first act, like My Strongest Suit, which is Princess Amner singing of her love for fashion, and then ends up with, uh, at a certain point, with the two lovers being um, buried in a tomb. And how do you navigate those shifts in tone. Uh, I think both Bob and I really love to have a degree of eclecticism in the work. I mean, I know I do that in my own plays where they're serious and, and yet I like to have a lot of humor in it. Um, and I feel that a lot of wonderful theater is able to do that. So just trying to figure out how to work with the tonal issues and the love stories, I think those were maybe two of the big categories of things that we started to struggle with um, after uh, we opened in Chicago. Well, had you booked uh, New York at that point? Yeah, and, 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 what, and what David mentions, we had time because we had designed it to have time. We knew that, that Bob and David and Bob were going to be coming to this for the first time to get it in Chicago. So what Stuart did when he laid the calendar out was say, okay, we're going to go to Chicago. Then we're going to have a period where we let the company go on a hiatus. Mm -hmm. They take a break, which allows us to do a lot of work. Right. And then we had a rehearsal period again here in New York. That wasn't grabbed ad hoc. We designed it that way, knowing we were going to want to spend more time working on it. And I'll tell you, it's interesting. Isabel sitting here, it was over Christmas this last year when we were getting ready for this, and Isabel and I were having lunch. And, I, you know, we, we had, it was a rough time in Chicago, because you'll look at it and you go, God, there's so much we still want to do. And, and we'll get to it, because we did a lot coming out of Chicago for here in New York. And I, I, Isabel and I, and I said, you know, what do you do? What do we do now? And she said, you know, she said, having chaired so many of these seminars, she said, so often people go out of town, but when you're coming back in, you don't have enough time. Everyone has a different idea about what they want to do, mm -hmm. and the ideas sort of cancel each other out. And we all talked about that, and it was so quick that we all got on board. By the way, we are all in love with our show. And we got on board with what we wanted to do and really marshal the troops. And Stuart had laid it out so well that we could, instead of all just infight the whole time, and we've all read countless books about that, we jumped right into it. So the closing weekend in Chicago, we did, what, 48 hours or something in a conference room of with Tim Rice there, an officer, you know, let's move this song. If we take this song and flip it and have a, you know, him sing it to her, and all the stuff that we know other shows have done. And we said, we need a new opening number. And so we went to Elton and said, we want to open the show with a different number. And, and really, Bob led us through a process, which was dramaturgically attacking it again. And we were all in lockstep. And it just, it had to go fast, because it was sort mm -hmm. of through the Christmas, New Year's period. And we had to so really so be hitting. What was the time frame? Well, it was about three weeks before we went back into rehearsal. But something very important happened in this process that usually didn't happen in a traditional tryout. In a traditional tryout, you would be working through the entire run of the show, say, in Chicago. What happened is we opened the creative team, except well, I was still there, we went away, and we got a chance to perform the show 
and to improve it. And I got a chance to get out from conducting and improve the sound. But what, what was not happening is we weren't putting in changes all the time. So the actors got a chance to make it really comfortable. So when you guys came back at the end of the run, you saw a polished show. So it was, it was much more easy to say, let's change this. It's really interesting and, and somewhat unusual, I think, in my experience, limited as it is, but certainly as a scholar of these things, yeah. that, that usually out of town, you know, uh, it, it's pretty chaotic. Once right. the show opens, you've got your reviews, which are generally... Uh, mixed and yeah. negative. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the legendary stories that turn it around, there's a lot. Some do, some don't. But I think that's part of the process of a Broadway musical, is you try it out. And in our case, what was really amazing was, maybe because we were all so exhausted, and we knew that we had more time coming up later, right. we did kind of abandon the show uh, in Paul's oh, hands yeah. and let the cast and the stage managers do it. Now, while it was flawed, in our opinion, the, the writers, the producers, the directors, the designers, we all thought they had flaws that were actually quite apparent. The audiences loved it. I mean, they were standing, they were cheering, and even with the flaws, they were embracing it. And the cast got amazing confidence yeah. by not having to get rewrites. They didn't want rewrites anymore. They didn't want to see our faces anymore. They wanted us to go away and let them play their show. And they played it for like eight weeks. That's right. Very successfully. So we were able to really kind of coolly, objectively analyze it. I can't begin to tell you, you know, you know someday I am going to put out a board game of fix a Broadway musical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's going to outsell Monopoly. <laughs> when you roll the dice and you get one, and that means the right. critics kill it. <laughs> and you get six, and that's raves. <laughs> yeah. What happened to all the contracts during that time? It was all set up to do that. So we, everyone was contracted to do the run in Chicago, to take the, hi, the hiatus period, to, which was only three weeks. And really, everyone wanted it. You know, people wanted to, I mean, you know, everyone went home and to see their families and stuff. So it was completely laid out and planned. Yeah. But, it was, it was, but also, as Bob says, what we did is we let them play the play. Because we didn't think at that point, change this line, change that line with what we wanted to do. We wanted to really do stuff. And we really did stuff. One of the things, though, you were asking, since you love about money, in the narrative here, here we are, this big weekend, at the end of the run, when we were ripping it apart and putting it back together again, and we had a big board, we were outlining what we are going to do. Sometime during that period, Bob and I spent the, the opening night party on um, some costumes. We said, we want to do this, and we, had, <laughs> we, we didn't have any money left. Which I know may come as a shock to you, Roy, but we were out of dough. And I said, so what we're going to do is, we're going to just have champagne in the lobby. And, it was, and, and we had to embrace the idea that's all we were going to do. Because we we're going to, you know, why have a party when you could have, you could solve a problem and, and make the show stronger? Ultimately, we figured out all how much we were going to spend. And by the, by the time we got to our opening, we were able to actually, we had pooled together dough and we'd overestimated on some stuff. And we, we, we did have a party. I know it was yeah. a big deal to you all. But, <laughs> but at one point, we had spent it. We were, you know, we were down to everything. Well, if we could just take that and if we could just get this. And, and, and there were big things, moving some scenic elements around. We totally added a new number to the end of the first act, um, changed the, wrote a new number for the, for the top of the first act. And these are things, though, that I think both of us, all of us, had had confidence to do because, you know, I'd only done, and I, by this time I had done, because someone asked this question, uh, clearly The Lion King on Broadway. We had also done King David, the concert version with uh, Alan Menken and Tim Rice working with uh, the great late Mike Ockrent. We'd also... 
um, uh, I've been through the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which we mounted in Germany. So I'd, we'd been through a few of these large-scale ones, plus I'd done a lot of development work in developing new plays. And I knew that the history of this was you have to be... But they really. still surprise you. Mm -hmm. You know, they're always going to surprise you. Every single, every single new musical that appears on Broadway, I mean, every single one that's on now has an amazing story behind it. I think that's part of what's uh -huh. so wonderful about these seminars is you're discovering the amazing story. I mean, the fact that we we're such geniuses as to leave the actors alone for eight weeks <laughs> was sort of an accident. <laughs> and it was, it was part, all of us going, oh, I just don't want to talk to them anymore. <laughs> and it was a big part, the actors saying, you know, we don't want any more of your rewrites. We don't want those stinging rewrites from you guys. Just stay out of our face. But it turned out to be the best thing because uh, we were all able to take the collective uh, uh, thinking. And there's a lot. And when you're working on a musical, everybody's got an opinion. You've got an opinion, we've got an opinion, my Aunt Sadie has an opinion, the guy cutting my hair says, you know what I think should happen when you're fixing the first act? Right. Everybody's got the terminology. Right. Oh, why don't you fix the second act? Why don't you do that? So I sort of led the process, as I think the director has to do, by synthesizing everybody's thoughts and finally saying, this is what I think we should do. And we kind of created a plan that then we debated, discussed, argued, and then ultimately all agreed on. I mean, I have to say, the weeks between Chicago and New York were sort of the scariest and the most exhilarating. Yeah. Because there was a period, I feel, about two weeks right after we opened in Chicago and we got the mixed to negative reviews uh, that was slightly chaotic, where everybody had kind of different ideas. Mm -hmm. And there was this, this moment, are we, are we going to be able to pull it together? Are we going to get on the same page? Are we going to sort of fall fate to what uh, Isabel and Tom talked about in their lunch? Just and um, it really, then we had that weekend, uh, the final weekend in Chicago, and uh, Bob led it and sort of got us all on the same uh, wavelength, and then we were all excited coming out of Chicago, and after that it was very pleasant again. Well, this Don't is the daring time. Roy, this, this isn't this what used to be done? Isn't this the old-fashioned way of going out of town with mm -hmm. a musical? Yeah, exactly. You went out of town and you tried to fix it, but it's what, what they did here, I think, is what, what's important. Mm -hmm. They did some daring things. Mm -hmm. They looked at a, a show in, in Atlanta and they said, okay, we learned something, we scrapped it. They went to Chicago and they examined it, they scrapped a lot of things and changed them. The old-fashioned way was you just polished, and it, frankly, right. if you went in there without a gem, no matter how you polished it, you still ended up with polished rock. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do that. They <laughs> did, some, they did some, something very, very, I think, which I call it daring because Bob could have come up with wild ideas. They bought what they wanted to and they created continue to create the musical they were aiming for. And I think that's to your absolute credit that you did that. It's very difficult uh, to tell someone that they're going to have to throw out a set of costumes when they know that they've spent a quarter of a million dollars on those and suddenly that scene is out. Sure. Or you tell your leading lady that that song you love singing in the middle of the first <laughs> act is going to be given to your leading man. <laughs> and that yeah. was a difficult moment. I'm, I'm, I'm picking a difficult moment, and I think that Heather Headley, who is so brilliant in this, so brilliant. But, you know, that was a tough decision because we looked at the story and we went, you know, we love the way she sings the song. It's been one of the showpieces of the show. But just to grab an example, we went, I think it'll be better if Adam Pascal sings that song to her. And that was traumatic. That's not an easy thing. You had to write her another song, did you? Well, what happened was... Uh, she has enough, believe me. I mean, she's got a lot of great songs, so it wasn't like we were taking away the heart and soul of it. But what happened was, interestingly, the song came back in the second act 
in previews as a reprise for her. So everybody was happy. But, you know, it's just there are decisions you have to make that are hard decisions. Mm -hmm. Throwing out costumes that you spend a lot of money on is difficult. Cutting a set piece. Cutting set, a set piece. Set piece. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting a new song is very Where hard. Where do the first cuts come when you have to cut? From what area do you... Which is the first one to be cut? Well, I, I don't think there's a first. Sequence. Well, the easiest thing to cut is the story because it's the cheapest. I mean, the writing. <laughs> that's the writing. And sometimes in the case of... You know, one of the things we want to do is we had at the end, if you've seen the show, at the end of the first act, it ends, and it used to end with a sequence that was much like the end of the act in, in, in the Verdi, the Triumphal March, where they bring in, I'm not sorry, they bring in Aida's father, and, and you see him exposed, and there's a confrontation there, and Aida sees her father for the first time, and there's all the secrecy, it's a big dramatic moment. That's the famous elephant moment. Well, we didn't want elephants in this, and we have them in another show we're doing, so we thought, well, <laughs> But we had this big moment and at the end of the first act, and we were never totally settled with it. And it came from Tim, right? We're, yeah. The gods Tim, of New York. Yeah, Tim. Tim. Yeah. Well, it, was, it was in two phases. Tim, Tim, in our working session, said, I think you ought to put the gods love Nubia into that position. And I instantly embraced it, and we all kind of yeah. went with it. But there was also then a sequence which David and I wrote, uh, which, you know, I was actually trying to be very thrifty. We had a very expensive piece of scenery in the show which was a giant staircase that descended, and I thought... For the appearance of the pharaoh. For the appearance of pharaoh, and I, it was going to be there, and I thought, well, I, it was sort of hard to imagine just throwing it out, like willy-nilly. So David and I kind of wrote and kind of kept it at the end of the first act, and it was actually quite spectacular, and it featured a pretty spectacular piece of Wayne Salento's dancing, and a pretty fantastic orchestration and arrangement, and the ensemble did this sort of big dance, yeah. and there was a lot around it. And uh, that was actually probably the last thing that changed in the show, was that I decided, and I had actually passionately felt we needed it. But then other people, including uh, Michael Eisner, the head of the company, and other people sort of said, you know, I think maybe the show would be better without it. But nobody said, you've got to get rid of it. It was just sort of, eh, and nobody knows. So we just kind of experimented, and there were some performances where we did it, some performances we did without it. And finally, I sort of made a decision and said, okay, we're going to cut that expensive piece of scenery. And along with that went an orchestration and a dance. But number. it brought a story, you know. And it was yeah. telling the story. It was trying to tell a story moment. And then, for me, what's interesting is when you look at it, what we have done is take the, the moment that you know from the opera, but look at it from a different point of view. Right. It's, if you will, it's the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern moment. Because instead of being in town, where the, where the pharaoh has his confrontation with Aida's father, you're back with the, the Nubians in the slave camp. And so you're in the same moment in time, but you're telling it from a different place. And then the act ends with a different focus. It's actually quite a Brechtian Marxist analysis of the <laughs> capitalist system by going to the slave camp and seeing the same scene from the point of view of the poor people. Or it's just a better song. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and to make it life even more difficult, because now we're on the road, back to the, back to the narrative, we are on the road now to Broadway. We are weeks away from a Broadway opening oh, yeah, and yeah. Broadway previews. Yeah. And we are driving them crazy because we're saying, well, we have to take pictures of the production and we have to do video of the production and we have to sell the show. And, you know, we're sort of gnawing at everyone. They're like, you know, we've got to fix our show. Well, at the same time, we're trying to sell the show, which is kind of annoying, but the reality of how you sell a Broadway show now. You have to start working so far in advance. So we are taking pictures of scenes that may or may not be in the and show. And by the way, by cutting that yeah. staircase, although we did spend a lot of money to build the staircase, we're saving $4,000 a month by not paying the rental on the motors that made it go up and down. And perhaps crew. Perhaps you should save yes, some crew. 
you can look at the but pictures of Aida, of all the productions of Aida that we have, because we have many, many stories we can tell. I think for that's everyone, the great lesson, by the way, and for us, is that the, it's all been about the development. It's right. been the luxury. If there's one luxury I find it being in Disney beyond anything else, it's that a great idea that inspires you has the ability to finally seek out its natural conclusion. This was a very public and bumpy ride to Broadway. Um, and yet, we have something that's, that we all care deeply about and have for a long time. And I think many places, just maybe for lack of funds, if nothing else, in the development process, mm -hmm. would get bogged down. And we're really lucky on that level. I think we've answered a question that uh, often comes up. What does a producer do? What does the producing team do? Uh, the concept is they, they do nothing but money. Now, we've, been, we've not discussed money, yet we've found out really what a producing team does here. And those are the hard decisions that were made, and they brought us to what uh, brought us Aida in town. And I think that uh, it, perhaps we've explained that it isn't just raising money and hiring the director. Yeah. It's a, no, it's I a think teamwork. I, I, I think, you know, we've lost a couple of the great producers of our times in this past week. Uh, and uh, what, what, what they indicate to me, and I think we see a lineage here, is a passion for the art, a passion to get something on stage. I don't think the Broadway musical or any play can exist without the extra, it's not about the money. The money is generally secondary, I have found. It's a nice sidelight, but it's about a passion somebody has to get that particular project on stage. Whether it's a legendary David Merrick or it's the Walt Disney Company, it's because you believe in the show. You believe in creating something that will have an enormous appeal for a lot of people. You know what I mean? And that's worth fighting for. And, and I think that what we lack on Broadway is extraordinarily passionate, visionary producers who believe in a product and will put money and energy and creativity behind it. I mean, for a writer, for a director, that's what we crave, is the support of producers who, despite any reviews, will take a play that the audience believes in. Mm -hmm. I, I think we're going to have to jump cut to the, uh, we're going to jump cut to the uh, Broadway opening, the success, and maybe just ask, Chris, who's your audience now while the show is running, and who are you addressing? A lot of people, which is very <laughs> well, exciting. I mean, the fact is, at the, to, to jump to the day after the show opened to, you know, reviews, which the press loves, you know, to tear apart anything new, and yet they want new musicals, so that's where we all get a little confused. But the fact is, we are playing to capacity audiences who love the show, a younger crowd than normal, um, and people walk out of there telling people they really love it. And um, Elton John is there a lot. You may show up and see Elton John in the audience, I, which is always I'm kind of I'm so exciting. sorry to cut you off, but I, I think I have to end this, and I, I would like to end it with your statement on passion because I think that's what the theater needs, and you've all exhibited it so, so much. And you, you've put your, your passion where your money is, and I think that's <laughs> very important. I thank you so much for being here. This is the production staff of AIDA, and it's been so important to have them here as part of the American Theater Wing Seminar on Working in the Theater, which is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. It is but one of the American Theatre Wing's year-round programs. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.